1: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Football's in the air, and we thought we'd take the opportunity of looking beyond the glory and the drama and explore the impact of cultural, ethnic, and religious diversity in the sporting arena. And we'll be looking at gender issues too. But first, anyone obsessed with the beautiful game will be agonising about England's lamentable record in penalty shootouts. Step forward, sports psychologist Bradley Bush.
2: I think we have about a one in five record of winning penalty shootouts. And what one study found was England players uh, rush their penalty Kick after the referee blows his whistle far quicker than all the other countries. So the reaction time between the referee blowing his whistle and them taking the penalty is about 0.2 seconds. And just to kind of give that some comparison, like Usain Bolt would be happy with that. Top teams in terms of penalty success tend to wait about 0.8 to one second. So
1: not much longer, but just having a moment, to have a deep breath, compose yourself. That was Bradley Bush speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast Football Under the Microscope. Joining me on Naked Reflections to discuss the beautiful game and diversity in sport are Matt Baker, pastoral support director for English football and chaplain to Charlton Athletic Football Club, and Faye Curran, former hockey international-turned-commentator who now works for the sports media company Hawkeye. And for those of you who don't know, Hawkeye is the computer vision system in tennis and other sports which visually tracks the trajectory of the ball. The same technology is used in football, known as VAR, and the cause of equal measures of pain and joy. Faye, we heard about the pressure on penalty takers in football. How did you deal with the pressure of playing international sport?
3: I think I was really lucky, to be perfectly honest, with my international career, because I had really great support mechanisms around me. I had phenomenal family support and I also had really good access to quality coaching. So for me, I think it was a lot about confidence and feeling confidence in lots of different areas. So feeling that I had people there to support me, knowing that I was going to be the first person to the wall and building confidence essentially was right the key for me and the enjoyment side of things. I think as soon as it flips from enjoyment to pressure that's when you have to readjust something. So for me, I felt that I had the right balance of enjoyment. And I had, you know, whether it be that I needed to have a quick conversation with my coach, whether I needed to readjust my drag flick, whether it was something that just needed a little tweak. That was really what what pulled me through was knowing that I'd done all the right preparation with all the right support behind me and tying that together together then just made the game so exciting with the fans. You did all that prep and you had all that that hard work first. You could enjoy the experience of being on the pitch.
1: Matt, is that part of what you do then, giving confidence to the players and the team?
2: Yeah, to a degree. I mean, I'm not a sports psychologist, obviously, but in terms of players off the field and offering support to them around pastoral and spiritual needs, and that that does and can have an effect on the pitch for some of them. Yeah, so it can play a part. Uh, I've not been involved in advising around penalty shootouts. You'll you'll be pleased to know. And I hope hope it never comes to that.
1: So no prayers that you know that you can can offer the players when they come up and strike the ball. Um, But what about the other aspects of your work, Matt? Because you talked about spiritual needs and pastoral needs, and that does seem to be playing an increasing role in your field of professional football.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We speak in Chaplaincy about being pastorally proactive and spiritually reactive. So in terms of the proactive side of it, we're there for everybody, whether they have a faith or not, to to be a part of the support around the club and around the sport in terms of pastoral care. So that can be a player or a member of staff with bereavement or issues going on at home or injuries or whatever it may be. And then the spiritual reaction side of it is we're not there to preach at people. We're not there to to force faith upon anybody, but reacting to where things are at spiritually with individuals. And within football, which is my main area that I've been involved in over the last particularly the last 10 years, we've seen a greater interest. From a spiritual perspective, whether that's Muslim players or Christian players, particularly, and a few Jewish players as well, so there's a there's a real mix in there now.
1: And how does that interface play out for a Christian minister like yourself? So, if a Muslim or a Jewish or a non-Christian player wanted spiritual guidance, would you also be able to offer support?
2: Absolutely, I can pastorally support anybody and everybody. In terms of the spiritual dimension, yes, I am a Christian minister and that's my training. So I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in the nuances of other faiths. However, I have some understanding, but it's important for me that we make the same things available. So, for example, you know, pre-match prayers that might go on at a particular club. If there are Christian players there who want to pray, that's fantastic. It's also important that the same room, the same availability is then given for, for example, Muslim players as well. And, of course, that can play a much bigger part during Ramadan, for example than at other times of the year, although, of course, Muslim players will want to pray throughout the rest of the year as well. So yeah, it's important to make the same access available, and then to signpost as well to a local mosque.
1: So that's the kind of nurturing aspect of your work. Faye, you follow tennis players all around the world. And of course, in tennis, there's that extra pressure because it's an individual. It's not a team sport. I know you may have doubles, but for the most part, it's an individual. And there's huge pressure on those players. And right now in the media is the attention given to Naomi Osaka and the pressures that she's felt and the depression and issues of wellness, partly due to social media condemnation and attack. So how do you view that? And what can be done to support players as far as that sort of abuse is concerned?
3: I think it's quite an unmetered topic in the sense that there aren't many rules when it comes to social media. You can have trolls from any angle about any topic at any time on any time zone. And I think it's a relentless force. We try and put that into our own situation. Let's say we have a bad day at work, and then we have millions of eyeballs on that, telling us specifically why we were bad at work that day. There's no rest. So if you're that one person who is just the central target of all that abuse, you've got nowhere to release you've got nowhere to go okay yeah I did have an awful day but my favorite follow-up to this was the Venus Williams interview that just happened and she came back and she said I know no matter what you write I am better than all of you at tennis and I will always be better than all of you at tennis that doesn't light a candle for her she had it was quite a spiritual um, sentence that she read so I think answers like that are finding the strength within yourself as a person which you have to have doing an individual sport. And my favourite example, I think, of a family unit is the Tsitsipas family. So you've got the father that's always there, the brother that plays doubles as well uh, with Stefanos. So you've got essentially a full family unit that travel round together to absorb perhaps some of that pressure that that is thrown at, at players. And I think in terms of the tours, it's unfortunate that the pattern seems to be someone makes a rash movement to do with equality to do with you know social media abuse and that rash movement then sparks a conversation about how things then need to be improved and unfortunately it seems to be quite a dramatic world that we live in in that sense that it can't just be a nice measured conversation between the tours and a a sports player it happens to be I'm going to make this brash statement we're all now going to talk about it and then we'll move on and make some change so Could there be more proactive conversations about mental health that happen? Could there be more guidelines put in place that are proactive instead of reactive? Almost like sort of the the pastoral balance you were talking about a bit earlier, Matt. There are two sides to it, aren't they? The proactive and the reactive. So how can you combine those for the full well-being of players? That's something that the tours and the players need to work together to sort, really.
2: Yeah, and I've seen, having been a champion for 20-odd years now, when I started out, if a player wanted to... And they wouldn't always do this. Get a view on their performance. They could look in the newspapers the next day. That's how we used to do it. Uh, and so you look in the Sunday papers, and it would tell you, you know, score you out of ten, how well you've done. And it was up to you if you looked at that or not. Whereas now, of course, you come off the pitch, and already there it is on your social media feed. What people have thought about how you have or haven't played. Now you can say, well, don't don't look at it. But of course, it's not easy to do that, is it? Particularly when so many people spend so much time on social media nowadays. So I've seen the detrimental effects that social media has on players when they get injured. You know, the criticism, oh, you're injured again. Well, as if it's their fault that they've got injured. Uh, and, and what sort of training? I think there needs to be a lot more thought in that in terms of how social media is handled by all of us, not just in our posting, but how we receive it as well. I think there's lots of lots more work to be, to be done in that whole area.
1: Yeah, there's a kind of lack of literacy as well, isn't it, by those of us who view the social media from the outside, as it were. And the additional uh, complication is the politicization of sport. Just recently, there's the debate about taking the knee and, you know, players being booed for for taking the knee. There's the saying that sport and politics should be kept separate, but it's never possible, is it? There's always going to be this tension between the two.
3: Being in the States when Colin Kaepernick first took the knee was quite a polarising experience because you saw the link again between politics and sport playing so clearly. You had a very clear Republican view and you had a very clear Democratic view. And you had almost sort of the Trump rally pushing people about how non-patriotic it was and how disrespectful it was and then you had the flip side of the argument of this person is being brave they're standing up for something important they're bringing light to an issue in quite a dramatic fashion in the same way that we've seen Naomi Osaka have a very similar conversation just around mental health so i think it's quite a powerful a powerful move and a powerful show of how these small but dramatic voiced opinions, can really start to shift a public opinion and can really bring to light some of the massive issues that just need a bit more attention.
2: And it never has really been kept separate, has it? I mean, you go back to Hitler, you know, and and things like that. There's always been a mixture in there, and, and people will use whatever platform they have promote things.
3: Yeah, I'd say that it is intrinsically linked. I mean, look at the Tokyo Olympics, they've announced 100% that the Tokyo Olympics are going ahead during a global pandemic. When you look at that, perhaps in 10, 15 years to come, you'll say we forced international travel during a global pandemic, not only for an Olympics, but for the US Open, whatever it may be, these giant sporting events, we're still trying to push when there are people dying on the street, there's polarity there. And I think that to ignore that, you can't you can't say that sport and politics aren't linked think of the money that the shop window Olympic effect they call it you have the white elephants of these massive stadiums that are built and they're never used after massive sports events you have the patriotism that comes around every country sort of competing and, and doing really well in the medal race and it'll be interesting to see how that pans out and what the plan is for what they'll do with crowds, because the Olympics is all about those the you know the Pierre de Coubertin values, isn't it? It's about taking part that counts, and it's less Lombardy, if you like.
1: <laughs> well, let's see if it happens. I'm not convinced it will, but maybe by the time this programme's broadcast, I'll be proved wrong. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Matt Baker and Faye Curran, and we're discussing sports. This is a podcast of two halves, so let's take a break and hear about the physics of ball games. Here's Hugh Hunt speaking on the Naked Scientists podcast, Football Under the Microscope.
0: If you're playing the game, you can put spin on to make it bounce in different directions, but it moves through the air just like in um In tennis or cricket, if you've got a spinning ball moving through the air that curves, bend it like Beckham, we've all heard. You can curve the ball left and right, you can curve it up and down.
1: In your work, Matt, there must be numerous cultural practices and rituals that take place before, during, and after the game. I often think of players who come onto the pitch, perhaps cross themselves or follow some Muslim ritual, opening the hands and looking upwards. Tell us a little bit about them and are they, forgive me for asking, just superstitions?
2: I think sometimes they, they are superstitions without question. It can be any kind of superstition. You know, you hear of players who put their boots on at the last minute or put their boots on before they put their shirt on and all that kind of stuff just because they did it once and then scored a goal. So, yes, there's all kind of superstitions. Um, and for some, crossing themselves can be part of a superstition. But for others, of course, it is a very strongly held faith and belief as well. And so there's a whole mixture in there in terms of of faith and cultural practices as well. You know, I was reflecting a little bit when uh, my own club, when we were back in the Premier League, back in the sort of 2000s, early 2000s, we had a couple of South African players. And I don't know how it initially started, but... They introduced this sort of South African warm-up, almost like a tribal dance beforehand, a couple of them, and the rest of the players joined in with it. And it became a ritual that happened before every game for several games, both home and away. And the other players loved it. You know, they weren't from South Africa, but they just joined in with it. And it was great to watch. Lots of people, particularly at Waygrounds, you know, would ask questions, what's going on here? But we got, we got used to it at the home games. And it was an interesting cultural development that came into our squad at the time just for that season became actually quite a unifying thing that they do it together and it became part of their pre-match warm-up whether there was any superstition in all of that I don't know I think we had a decent run at the time and won a few games Uh, all that can play in your mind but yeah, there's a whole mixture in there
1: so I can see the I don't the unifying spirit of something like that At the same time, I suspect there are also tensions within team sports. We'll perhaps come to tennis in a moment. But in team sports, Matt, whether it's tensions between different nationalities who maybe their countries may be in tension with one another. You think of India and Pakistan or you think of Israeli players and Arab countries, for example. So it could be political. It could be religious. It could be ethnic. I mean, how are they managed? And in your experience, I'm sure you've had to give thought to that.
2: Yeah, well, I'm showing my age here. But if you go right back to the 80s, if you remember the Falklands conflict, there were a couple of Argentinian players playing for Spurs, Ozzy Ardiles, for example. And when the Falklands conflict started, and if you remember, there was a tension building up to it when it started. Now, he was an Argentinian player who'd won the World Cup in 78, been at Spurs for several years. And then in that first game, there was a tension, particularly from the fans, you know, some shouting England, some shouting Argentina. Now, that became a very tense time for him. And, and as I understand, he went out on loan to a French club for a number of months, away from the tension of that because it was affecting him. So there you have that conflict that was going on miles away between Britain and Argentina, and that it was a, being played out in that sense on a, on a football field in North London. So, OK, that's, that's a number of years back, and that's me reflecting in terms of football, but it can definitely have that effect. And I think it would still have today, if I'm honest. I'd say nothing has changed. Things have changed a bit. But particularly when you get that raw crowd, tribal element that we have in football matches,
1: it would happen again, I believe. Fay, I suspect there isn't quite the same thing in individual sports, such as between tennis players. Are there any custom or little practices you've noticed uh, around the world amongst the tennis fraternity?
3: Absolutely. I think everyone knows Rafael Nadal's superstitions are just they take up so much time I'm pretty sure that's why they've introduced the shot clock in tennis (laughs) just to get people moving quickly in between points it's slightly different when it's international I think rivalry is something that is encouraged within tennis because it's all about individual competition it's it's all about getting one up on your your arch rival or whoever it may be however there is a a very nice friendship that also travels with the tour there's Carlos Suarez Navarro She's just recently recovered from cancer and there's been a lovely, from all of her rivals, there's been a lovely welcome back message sent across the tour to bring her back into sport. But and maybe rugby is is a good example of the hacker. I mean, my favourite probably working sporting memory was sitting down at the semi final at the Japan World Cup and watching the hacker live. And you feel the energy that just roars around the stadium, and you you see it as unifying and you see it as terrifying. And England got fined for making their V shape to kind of welcome the hacker in, and it was a big controversy. They got fined like ten grand for being over the halfway line just to make a stand. And I think that's. A really interesting power play between two massive teams at such a crucial moment. I'm
1: wondering how male that is and whether in terms of gender issues, whether in women's sports and of course your own contribution participation in international hockey and in women's sports, whether there's a similar type of thing or is that a bit of what my daughter would call male toxicity?
3: I think there are definitely routines and there are cultural practices within women's sport. I can't comment for the the women's New Zealand rugby team, but I definitely think there's there's just as strong a practice for women. I think some people have certain ways they grip their hockey stick. Some people have certain sweatbands they like to wear. Some people have you know, certain specifications that they like their shoelaces to be. Some tennis players always switch to a certain tension of string at a different time, even if their racket's completely fine. It's just those little mental adjustments that people rely on as their anchors to pull them through the matches. And I think that they're just little positive tweaks, aren't they? that keep pulling people through and be that as a team or an individual, I still think they're abundant within international and elite sport.
1: We've touched on gender issues. I wonder if we can move on to gay issues and and also concerns such as homophobia, which has been a topic of concern in football, hasn't it, Matt? And the the attacks on the language, the abuse that sometimes you hear amongst spectators, not that we have many now, but nevertheless, it's there. What's being done to fight it? And is it getting better?
3: You
2: raise it in terms of football. I think that the, the issue really is around crowds and stadium, I think that would, would be where it was an issue rather than teammates competing together. I, I think within the game and I hope I'm not being naive here, but I've definitely seen over the last you know 20 years in terms of faith and gender a much greater understanding uh, of one another and acceptance within football than there's ever been. Now I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's much better than it was. But I think when you when you're in a stadium, to come back to what I said earlier in terms of that raw tribal sort of atmosphere, I think it's much harder and it's a sometimes it's well, you know, what can football do about this? Well, it's more of a society issue and that's not ducking it. Uh I think football can lead away. It has done in the past with racism. Now racism's reared really its ugly head again, of course. Uh, It can lead the way, it can have an impact, but there are societal issues there that we've seen increase in. And we've seen it over this last year or so during the pandemic around racism, but can also be around issues to do with, you know, gender as well. So I think we need to keep it out there, keep talking about it and keep trying to address it. There are great organisations like Kick It Out, for example, within football and within sport and the PFA are, are making a stand, but we've still got a long way to go with it, I believe.
1: Faye, you travel around the world in your work with Hawkeye and of course practices and customs and cultures are very different in different parts of the world. Um, Have you come across much racism, whether it's issues of colour, ethnicity uh, or even sexism, examples of misogyny and so on in your sporting arena?
3: From a professional perspective, I'm always in the minority being a woman in a very technical industry and you tend to come across Middle aged white men um, that are cameramen, who are cable runners, who don't believe that women can really know what they're talking about when it gets to really technical specifications of camera feeds. Or, you know, I walk up to someone and say, Actually, I'd like this progressive, not interlaced, and they look a little bit shocked. And you say, Yes, I am asking you, and I would still like it now, please. So I think that, on top of perhaps being a young woman in the industry, and one of my colleagues is black. We experience the same thing, which is you don't get taken as the person in charge. They're almost looking around for someone else, someone older, someone, where's Where's the man in charge, is what I get quite a lot. And I say he's here. So I think that from a personal perspective is probably what I come across. But From the sort of sports I've seen, you look at Israel, I think it's Folau. He is an Australian all-star sort of fullback that basically got sacked from the Australian rugby team because he posted that hell awaits gay people. And then he wanted to sue the Australian Rugby Federation because he said he was being religiously discriminated against. And he thought that that was really unjust, that he should get sacked for his religious view. From a women's sport perspective and having played in a lot of sort of women's teams, I think it's a much more accepting environment. I think there are fewer sort of homophobic cases. Arguably, there are more gay people in women's team sport that are open about it. And it seems to be a more accepting environment. So I'd say to draw the parallel it's a much more welcoming environment and it tends to be not as professional. So it still has the family feel and the supportive side to things. It's not as commercial or corporate and sponsorships aren't going to be dropped if someone finds out that you're gay. The 2019 Women's World Cup has really just flown women's sport off the scale. You know, you've got the Alex Scotts now presenting on your BBC programmes and you've got that real bought-in interest of women in sports media and you've had Claire Balding flying the flag for years at the Olympics Olympics being the most knowledgeable person on site and all of those positive role models are really building up the profile of women's sport and the professionalism of it. It was great hearing Faye speak there because I feel
2: very similar within football I was on a call earlier this week with regard to women's football and it's been brilliant to see how the the platform is being raised now in terms of women's football because historically you know it's been treated appallingly by the FA and by the men's game and what have you. Sadly, I can't see it ever getting up to the, to the level of men's football in that sense, because there's so much investment, you know, it's very hard to catch up those 60, 80 years or whatever it is. Uh, But it's great. It's now catching up a lot, a, a lot more. And genuinely people are watching women's football and enjoying it and enjoying it for its skills, not in a patronizing way anymore, but this is great football to watch. And I think that's brilliant. Uh, and I hope we can carry on encouraging that. The other thing I'm, I'm liking as well is the fact that perhaps more and more clubs are seeing the coming together of, of the men's side and the women's side. And it, and it's seeing it as a club overall rather than, well, this is in that side and this is in that. And I think it'd be great if we could see clubs coming together, men and women's team together as an overarching club and, and down through academy levels in, into into that side of things as well, where you've actually got young boys and young girls playing football, but getting the same the same academic um, training as well, getting the same social skill, all of that being part of an overall academy rather than it's the boys' academy and the girls' academy. Now, it'd be great if we could move in that direction. It'd be really, really healthy.
3: I was just going to say off the back of that, that one thing I think contributes to sort of the difference is the media coverage. So you've got roughly around 4% of sports media coverage going to women at the moment, and that might hit 10% when an Olympics pops up or a World Cup pops up. And also it tends to be when there are no men's events on that you tend to see more women's coverage in the media. I think almost the bridge of that gap is, yes, there's, there's a lot of movement in the men's sporting world at the moment, but can we push up the margins can we bring more women's sports stories to life and I think what you mentioned Matt the sort of the rise in women's football is the women's super league I think it was established in about 2010 and you know the Barclays women's super league has just been huge for sport and we're now starting to see little highlight videos of the best goals from the weekend and you're starting to see women's goals in there as well and you're having 30 yard screamers that are going top left corner and you're thinking God, that's brilliant. You know, it's great sport to watch. So just pushing the platform, I think, has been a good investment. And like you say, Matt, there is so much more investment that needs to go to catch up with men's sport and well, men's football. But I do think the mechanisms are there and they're starting to churn away. You know, we
2: have seen that more, haven't we, I think, in terms of the Olympics than perhaps in other sports and other areas. I definitely have been as excited about the women performing. This is the patriotism coming in again now. But, you know, cheering on British athletes, whether they're male or female, just as excited. You know, Jess Ennis and all of that kind of stuff have been brilliant in the past. So it would be great to think we could see that happening in other sports as it's happened out in the Olympics.
1: They think it's all over it is now. Forgive me. It was like an open goal and too good an opportunity to miss. How could I not end this episode of Naked Reflections without harking back to 1966? Thanks to my guests, Faye Curram and Matt Baker. And thanks to you too, wherever you are, for listening. Feel free to contact us at Naked Reflections. You can find us at the Wolf Institute, send an email or message us via Facebook or Twitter. You can also look into the back catalogue of the Naked Reflections podcast and find an amazing array of topics from addiction to zoonosis. I'll be back next week with some more guests.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development?